Welcome to Women and Manufacturing, where accomplished women interview accomplished women, with your host, Barbara Troutline. Welcome. I'm Dr. Barbara Troutline, Principal and Chief Catalyst at Change Catalyst, home of the CQ System for Developing Change Intelligent Leaders and Organizations. I'm thrilled to be a host for Women in Manufacturing, along with six other amazing co-hosts. The conversations we're having with exceptional women in STEM fields is mission critical for organizations to ensure all voices are heard and able to contribute in this time of massive disruption across industries and around the globe. And of course, it's of vital importance for women and girls also, and men and boys too, to achieve success in life and work. Please do continue to engage in this conversation by following us online at Women and Manufacturing or MFG, womenandmfg.com, and also on Twitter. Our conversation today will focus on manufacturing, obviously, and from a unique perspective of a woman who is highly skilled and experienced in the human capital aspect of the manufacturing world. So, I'm honored to be joined today by Chris Healy. Although the largest portion of Chris's professional HR experience has been in manufacturing, she also has extensive experience in banking, healthcare, printing, distribution, and trucking, and also retail. Chris presently works as the Vice President of Human Resources for Performance Food Group in Temple, Texas. Previous to this, she served as the Director of HR for Cisco, Cisco with an S, in Las Vegas, and as the HR business partner for Wells Enterprises, the makers of Blue Bunny Ice Cream, and that's actually where Chris and I met when I was consulting for the firm in St. George, Utah. One of her passions is to teach, so Chris serves as an adjunct faculty for the University of Phoenix, teaching human capital courses, certification courses for the International Federation of Employee Benefits, and she guest speaks at various professional groups, as she's doing for us today. Chris's educational background includes a PhD in organizational psychology, a master's in human resources, and a bachelor's in business administration. Aside from this, Chris holds many professional certifications from a PHR to a group benefits associate and compensation specialist to uh, being skilled and certified in assessment tools such as the Berkman and the Predictive Index. So please join me in welcoming Chris to our show. Welcome, Chris. Thrilled to have you. Thank you, Barbara. It's my pleasure to be here today. Well, I was wondering if, in addition to all that that I just shared from your bio, if there's anything you'd like to share that you think would be valuable for the audience to know about your career and life thus far. Sure. So, so Barbara, I grew up as a military child, and then, you know, that wasn't enough for me, so I went on and I married a soldier as well so I could continue to traipse around the globe. Um, but what that has done for me, it's given my, my tacit experience. Um, I've gained some of that in, in my ability to uh, adapt to new surroundings, situations, new people, um, and just all the change that's involved with that. And that has given me really a, a very wide breadth of experience um, that you really can't get on a job. You have to get that through, you know, just all those experiences of moving and encountering different situations and different people. Um, and, and it's also been very instrumental in helping me to learn new systems, processes, and cultures 
um, no matter what industry I'm in. And you being a change expert can understand that. You know, my, my, my uptime for those kind of things really was enhanced by my lifelong uh, need to keep changing. So when it comes time to change, I just change. So that, and that's helped me with all my academic and my professional pursuits. Absolutely. And so you definitely are adaptable and from a change intelligent perspective, as we talked about, an adapter also. <laughs> so, um, yes. so absolutely. And speaking of your academic background, uh, congratulations on just very recently at obtaining your PhD. You just walked down the aisle a couple, a couple of weeks ago, I believe. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Yes. Thank you very much. It was, uh, you know, that, that piece of my journey, I never planned on doing it. In fact, I was after I finished my master's, somebody asked me, well, now you can just go on and do a doctorate. And I said, oh, no, I will never do that. And, and, <laughs> and then one day I'm, I'm sitting there in southern Utah wondering, you know, hey, I need to learn some more stuff. So um, I decided, well, let's get a new challenge. And I went and I signed up for a doctoral program um, with Walden University. You know, and, you know, a non-traditional learner, full-time job in manufacturing, which is, as you know, it just never stopped. Mine, mine was a 24-5 operation. Um, I had my family, and then I was committed to several civic responsibilities. I actually sat on eight boards at that time. Um, that, that, all of that together, I found, was very helpful in not, not only growing myself, but it helped my organization because I was able to use that network um, to help enhance them through getting the right talent and then developing that talent and, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I want to emphasize with that process is uh, there's a lot of times people shy away from the quote-unquote hard thing. This, I am evidence that people can do the hard thing, especially women, because women are usually the ones that are tasked with taking care of the household as well. Um, I, I, I am a testament to that. So I want all the women out there listening that you can do the hard thing. Um, you just got to get out there and do it. The one caveat is there is a little bit of an opportunity cost to your leisure time because we can't do it all. So there is a little bit of opportunity time, but if you're willing to make a little bit of that sacrifice, um, your goals can be met. And so that, that is the testament I want to leave for the women um, through my journey doing this PhD with all that stuff going on. Yeah, that's amazing, Chris. And as you know, the expression goes, you can do anything, you can just do everything, right? Or at least right. everything all at once. So that's, a, that's an important caveat. And I like the message about it's hard, but it's doable. And I knew you had yes. you took on a lot of civic responsibilities, but I did not realize you were on seven different boards. Um, that's inspiring enough because we all know that in addition to the dearth of women, the small percentage of women in the C-suite, there's also a dearth of women and a very small percentage of women relative to men on boards. So I'd love to hear just a bit more from you about your board service. And, you know, it's fabulous that not only did you leverage that opportunity to contribute your voice and perspective to the organizations that you serve, but also you were able, it sounds like, to leverage that for the companies that employed you. So, again, yeah. if you could share more a little bit about that journey. So, so I served, of, of course, on my local affiliate of the Society of Human Resource Management Board. I served on that, and there was a couple of years, three years out of ten that I lived in southern Utah that, that I served as the president of that board, which automatically put me on the state board for, for the Utah SHRM. And so that was kind of a fun endeavor to try to get out there and engage 
um, the HR, my HR counterparts around the county, many of which were in manufacturing, but also to have a little bit of influence at the state and sometimes at the national level because of that, that uh, commitment that I, that I signed up for there. Um, I also served on the employer support of the Garden Reserve, which is um, a subsegment of the Department of Defense, which uh, it, it, it goes out and, and helps employers understand the rights of our military um, employees, the ones that are either veterans or they're serving National Guard or Reservists. Um, and so that was, that was really fun and inspiring be, you know, because I got to meet all, I'd go to the unit sometimes and talk to them about here's your responsibility, but a lot of times I was in with employers um, other than my own because they were struggling with some, either they weren't abiding by the USERA law or they were having a soldier or a service member that was uh, kind of confused on what their obligations to that employer were. Um, so that was one of them as well. I started out in Utah with the workforce folks, the, the, the government workforce folks, um, in the western region, sitting on a council for them, and that evolved into where I got to sit on the State Workforce Investment Board for the state of Utah. And, you know, again, that was, it was very helpful to understanding, you know, just different, different ways that, um, business is supported from the government. There, sometimes there's this antagonistic um, relationship that is between those two parties, but, but when you get in the inside and you can actually see where the systems are that are helping through the community to bring the human capital to the employer and where the employer can actually leverage some of those services, it really can be a, a beautiful thing. You know, I used to tell, tell my folks, and I still do because I sit on that board here in Texas now too, um, I used to tell them, you know, just um, don't don't be antagonistic with it. It's not going anywhere, so you might as well embrace it and see how together we can make a good thing happen with getting people employed in viable jobs and help our companies to grow and be thriving. So that's yeah, and I think that that's one thing. Yeah, it. no, thank thank you for sharing that, and that's one thing I've always seen that you're, in, um, you know, a connector and a bridger. And I think those are qualities that, again, you know, men or women can bring to the table. And, um, you know, I definitely see that, um, that you've done that both within your organizations that you serve as well as across the different organizations. Um, and I was interested actually now in taking a step back and, um, and asking you, how did you decide to go into manufacturing? I know that you started in um, uh, different industries. And so what kind of attracted you to the manufacturing field? And what was, uh, what was that, um, you know, early part of your career like? Sure. So, so I started out my career as a banker. And so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of females do that. They go get onto a teller line, and then they, they grow their career um, up through the ranks there, or they opt out and go on to a different direction. Well, I started out as a banker, and then I married my husband, who was in the military, and knowing that he was going to be, you know, relocated every one to three years is usually what it is, I decided I'd stay in banking for a while. Um, we, we got stationed over in Europe, and when we came back, um, to this area here in Central Texas, to the Fort Hood, um, I went into the bank and, and had realized at that point that they were working on Saturdays and they were working in grocery stores, and it was like I had been in a time warp. And, you know, I decided at that point, you know, I, I probably just don't want to do this anymore because I was starting once again at the very bottom, and this was after 10 years of experience in the banking industry. And and so I didn't want to start back at the bottom. I wanted a brighter future for myself. So I went back to school um, and obtained my, my uh, business degree uh, in my bachelor's, 
in with an emphasis in HR. And interestingly enough, going back to that tenacity thing when people think they can't do hard things, I culminated with that degree after going to six different institutions. Um, oh. I had more, well more credits than you needed to to get that done, but because I had to, you know, the pleasure of moving all the time, um, I ended up with all those credits. Um, and so my last, where I finalized that degree at, I was actually living on Fort Knox, and I finished that degree at the University of Louisville and transported those credits back here to the University of Central Texas and graduated through them. But I was very fascinated, always fascinated with how things are made and, um, you know, just what are all the processes and the things that go into that. So uh, being in Louisville, there's a lot of manufacturing there. I started asking some questions and you know, I signed up to go do my master's degree in HR with Webster and got to know some of those professors, and they're, they're working professors. Um, they work in industry. And so just piqued my interest more and more. But here's, here's what happened is I was told that because I was a banker that I would not be ever selected to go into manufacturing because I didn't have that industry experience. Well, long story short, because we can see I've been in manufacturing now, I just kept at it, and I just – you know, worked my way into a couple of different jobs here and there and then, you know, moved about a little bit when the opportunity came. And I'm proud to say that I've been part of the manufacturing sector now, and it, it's, it's awesome. And I think it's a great career opportunity for women to be in, and I think the manufacturing sector itself benefits by having females in there. Well, that's an amazing journey because it sounds like that you just saw this opportunity and possibility on your own without encouragement or mentoring or, you know, anyone kind of uh, pointing you in that direction, saw the possibility and to your point about tenacity, just stuck with it. And, um, you know, even in the face of being told no, uh, went for it. Uh, so that's, um, that's, uh, that's inspiring in and of itself. And yet, of course, part of what we're up to here is to how can, you know, women and girls really not have to go through what you did, the struggle of finding these opportunities on their own and, and uh, you know, continuing to persevere after, after being told no, but how can we kind of facilitate them finding these opportunities as well as, you know, being able to more easily and swiftly um, access them. So especially from your unique vantage point, as a human capital professional, what have you noticed about other women's journeys into industrial jobs? And, um, you know, what have you observed on, on that front? And what can we do to, again, facilitate their finding these possibilities and being able to access them? Yeah, sure. That's, that's a great question. And, you know, I think I'm really proud. When I come across the ambitious young women that you see nowadays that are either in college or they're in high school, um, they're, they're wired just a little bit differently than my generation was. And so they don't easily seem to take a no, but many of them aren't exposed to, to a great deal of um, job, jobs that are out there. There's, there's still some of that. You can go be a nurse or you can be a teacher. You can you know, go be a lawyer. But there's, when it comes down to the blue-collar sector like manufacturing, there, there's not a lot of awareness oftentimes in the school system um, regarding that, especially if once you get into college because it's more of a vocational um, aptitude than an academic aptitude to go into manufacturing. The realization that they're missing, though, is that there's a lot of the, the white-collar jobs are in the manufacturing unit. You have your controllers and you have your quality assurance folks. You have your food science people. They're in the blue-collar industry, but they're doing white-collar jobs, and they're, they're absolutely fabulous jobs. So what can women and girls do? 
Well, first of all, I think they need to go visit their career counselors in schools. Um, and some of those, um, we know some are a little bit more robust than others in, in their functionality of guiding people on, on what jobs to go into. Um, but they can also go online and look at the Occupational Outlook Handbook. That's kind of a nerdy thing to say. Um, a lot of people don't know about that, but you can start exploring jobs through, through that book or just go online and look at the show How It's Made. And, and start to look at what's out there and, and then go get some testing to see what kind of uh, skill set you have and interest that you have to go into some of these jobs. Look at the job boards. Uh, you can pull up a company, you know, pull up a Cargill or pull up a, 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 a General Motors, any of them. Pull up Wells Blue Bunny. Pull, pull them all up and take a look at the job boards and see what jobs are out there and then start looking at what kind of skills and education you need to get into them. Um, as far as the no, you know, finding a job in general is the law of numbers. And so you're going to get a lot of no's before you get to yeses, but you can't give up. You have to put in, in your head, this is what I want, this is what I'm driving toward, and this is what I'm going to go after. And sometimes you do need a, a coach to help you with, you know, how do I, you know, develop my resume so that it says I, I'm fit for manufacturing so I can get that interview. Sometimes you need a little bit of networking help. Um, and so don't be afraid to ask people that you know. Uh, and it could be people that, like for a young girl that's maybe in high school, it could be somebody that her parents work with that they have a connection to. So don't be afraid to ask and see if you can get an informational interview or even a plug for, can you just even look at this young person's um, resume to see if you can get them into an entry-level job um, at all. Just ask. But don't take no for an answer. Yeah, no, that's wonderful about the things that women and girls can do for themselves in terms of um, seeking out these different resources. We'll definitely put some of the links that you mentioned um, uh, attached to this, uh, to this interview at womenandmfg.com so people can, can find them. Um, what else, to the, again, you know, great overview of what, uh, you know, what individuals can do for themselves um, how about what can, and especially from your unique perspective, uh, you know, again, working with high schools, working with um, uh, secondary schools, what can high schools and colleges do that will make a difference? You know, I think that that's a key point that's starting to come back. In fact, this morning I was in a, a briefing that is with uh, Representative Hugh Shine of Texas, and he puts together these briefings periodically. And today he had the school, the school system um, speaking um, about how they do things here. And there is somewhat of a swing that's coming back a little bit for that focus on the career readiness of the student rather than just, you know, give them a standardized test and wish them well <laughs> when they graduate. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I think that the whole process needs to start before high school. It really needs to start maybe, you know, in the middle school years. Um, where they can start exploring some careers a little bit more. If the school system can get some of that information embedded in the curriculum, it can give that exposure to, to the students that they can see, you know, what's out there. And, and I think that that's a really big piece of what's missing is people don't know what they don't know. Um, I can't, you know, just as I wander around and meet people I, and they tell me what their occupation is, I wonder, how did you find out about that kind of a job? Because it's not a mainstream job. Um, and so getting some of that into the school system through bringing in guest speakers from the manufacturing companies um, and, and so on and so forth can help broaden that, that outlook of the student. Um, then carry that over into the high school. 
um, helping them help the students to explore, give some some kind of testing or some instruments um, on helping them understand where their strengths are, their aptitudes, what are their interests as well. You know, because some some people are interested in being outside and some people aren't. Some people are interested in being in a place with windows. Some people aren't. Some people want to work with their hands. Some people, you know, don't don't really find that very um, appealing at all. Um, but see if they have an alignment with manufacturing at all. And then the high school system can can then put in some kind of a, a curriculum that can match some of these aptitudes. And I know here at my local school district they have a, a CTE program, the Career and Technical Education. It's fabulous. They have a little mock-up of manufacturing here where the students can opt for classes and they go in and they get to play with a production line and do different things. Um, and so it's it's really um, important that they have those kind of things available. And depending on the area that you're in, uh, they be it a regional area or state or even within the state, a lot of that happens based on what the businesses are around that high school. So we have a lot of manufacturing around us here in Temple, so they put that manufacturing piece into the high school over there. Um, but it helps the kids to get an idea of what is this about and what kind of uh, roles are out there. Uh, but I think high schools really need to do a lot more of that, and the middle schools need to um, start it for them. Yeah, that's fabulous that you brought up middle schools, um, especially in starting that young and meeting them where they're at, um, things like the show How It's Made, and just uh, starting them even to think about the fact that uh, that you know, the looking for a job is is a two-way process. It's you know a combination of knowing what's out there and what's possible, and it's also knowing myself uh, to your point and all the different ways that that people are different and how they you know how their passions get get expressed. And, uh, and, you know, of course, it's the, the school systems that are uniquely set up to be able to, like you said, do the testing and then provide the resources. And, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, engaging things, like you said, inviting speakers in, people with different types of jobs, and, and then seeing people who are, you know, of different, you know, genders, races, different backgrounds, and different kinds of jobs. So people see that, oh, that that is possible for me, right? Um, right. I think is also a, also a wonderful idea. Right, right. Yeah, because when they see that it's possible through other people, it gives them a little bit of that self-efficacy that they can do it too. So yes, that's really absolutely. important. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, okay, so how about industry? Uh, you've been in uh, manufacturing industry, as you noted, for two decades and, and various different types of manufacturing organizations. What can industry, industrial organizations, do to make a difference, to attract more women and girls to the industry? So industry, I, I have a strong passion for this. They, they, they really need to step out and support. Some organizations do a fine job with that. Others are just so focused on, on getting their bottom line met and making sure they have you know, X amount of widgets um, out the door by the end of the day, the week, the month, whatever it is. Um, but they really need to partner uh, with those school districts on educating the students um, in what their careers are. And you know, with, that, with that thought that, and I had this conversation this morning too, with the thought that the production line for the human capital inside the manufacturing business is really the school system. That's where they need to go and give some of their investment, whether that's just time. They could give resources of helping them to buy maybe some little manufacturing machines or what have you. But really time is what they need. If you can get people up to the school system um, take a take a frontline person, take a, one of the leaders, have them talk um, to the students, do various presentations, 
maybe start a mentoring program where you take the, the A students that, that really want to be in manufacturing and they get you know, a certain amount of mentoring from a leader inside of an organization, uh, help them to get through their high school and then get them on the right track. Uh, go to the career fairs. Many high schools have career fairs, and oftentimes what you'll see is the fast food restaurants that are there or the small mom-and-pop organizations. The larger businesses that are manufacturing, distribution, all of those, they need to go, and they need to um, also give their input into the curriculum. This is what we want. This is what we, we need. These are the competencies that we need um, on our job. How are you putting that in your curriculum? You know, and I, I can remember one time going over to to the school district talking to the counselors, and they wanted to know something as simple as how does math help you on your job? And so I started, this when I was with the ice cream um, plant, and they started, I started to tell them, I said, look, when they're making Neapolitan ice cream, that's a mathematical calculation of how much of that batch of that ice cream product is going to go through each one of the filler heads. It's 33.3%. You know, and so that's a basic mathematical calculation. When they were doing the output of the ice cream, as far as, you know, stacking it on the pallets, there's only so much cube that can fit onto a pallet, and there's only so many pallets that can fit in, inside a truck, so that's all mathematical calculations. And their eyes just lit up, and you could see the wheels start turning, that, oh, this is applicable. But the school system can't do that by themselves. They have to have that industry partner you know, the thing to keep in mind from industry is the teachers are the teachers and they have a curriculum, but many of them have never worked in industry. So they themselves don't have a complete picture of what that connection is. So if the, if the business goes over and partners with the school district, they can help make that connection, which can then be passed on to the students. Yeah, oh, that's that's just wonderful. Um, I love that example of making Neapolitan ice cream and the pallets on the truck. And that just, again, who can't relate to ice cream? And it just pops. It makes it come alive for students when, uh, you know, again, having two teenagers who roll their eyes and ask, you know, how is algebra or geometry relevant, right? Um, that's right. That's a great real-world example about how it is. And I also love the idea, just like you have coached your um, uh, organizations in terms of having more effective partnerships with government organi organizations and entities that, you know, the same thing with the school systems that a lot of times the focus can be on complaining that our students are not ready for uh, specific jobs when they graduate the school system. How about transitioning to be a partner to setting the kids and the, in yourselves up for success in um, in giving them the skills and the mentoring, the training that they need before they even graduate. Um, so, um, you know, great real-world advice, uh, Chris, absolutely. And Thank I love you. the analogy of the production line, that the school system is really the production line, and I'm sure that really speaks to your listeners when you share it that way. Yes, yeah, there, you, it, it's interesting to be in, in a room full of educators and watch their eyes just light up. And, oh, mm. yeah, that's their mission, and so... You know, that partnership, but again, industry owns part of this. And so it's not all on the school system to just spit out this product that's going to come to work for you. Industry owns a piece of it, and they have to give something back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just yeah. also that systems thinking that, you know, again, the um, the output of the school system might be, a, you know, a child with a, you know, high school degree, right? And yet that's an input uh -huh. into everything that happens next for our society in terms of the manufacturing base. So, um, so that's, yeah. uh, that, that, that's really great analogy that works on both sides of the house. Um, Absolutely. 
Yeah. Okay. So now I want to go back to the question of looking at some of the women that you have worked with over the course of your career in manufacturing. And so one, uh, uh, what have you seen and what advice can you share or observations with the audience about what women, once they get into manufacturing roles, um, uh, that, that you may be observed in terms of some um, uh challenges that they might experience as well as maybe some, you know, mindsets or behaviors that, um, that, that, that you've observed that could uh, increase the probability of success or sometimes get in the way, especially your role in HR and, you know, counseling, mentoring men and women, anything you would say on that subject? Yeah. So, so I'm going to share it. Can I share two success stories with you? Of course. As I tell, okay. Okay. So I have two, Two success stories, uh, and I'm very proud of these these young women. Um, they're probably oh, they're probably from different generations. One one was a millennial, and the other one was a Gen Xer. Um, anyway, I worked with them at the ice cream plant. The first one, she came to us um, with a barrier to employment, and that's what we call it when they have you know either it's a uh, a mental handicap or they just have something in their socioeconomic background that that prohibits them from you know, being in the mainstream. This young woman came out of the the polygamous sect out there in southern Utah, and she had left their community, so now she was pretty much alone. She had to leave her family and everything. And so we hired her very young, put her on the production line, and and she did very well. She was very kinesthetic, and so she could make those machines work. She understood all the processes. She was very bright. But she got what many women get, when they go into manufacturing. Although she was an assertive, very direct kind of person, because she was female, she was considered and treated by some of the men that she was pushy, bossy, and aggressive. And so, you know, she, she could work circles around those guys. And, um, and so what we did with her was we started to really monitor her because she had some talent. We started to monitor her and her, her skill sets with, with the people and their receptivity and then with her technical skill. And we took her and we put her in the maintenance department and we trained her on the anhydrous ammonia system, which is pretty technical in and of itself. We trained her there and then we trained her to be a reliability technician, which is generally a role that's reserved for, you know, somebody that's been in maintenance for a decade or more. Um, but we put her there, we trained her, she thrived. And she, she worked with the guys over there, they, they at first were a little reluctant around her, but then when she showed that she knew what she was doing and that she could learn it and she was willing to get in there and do the hard thing that they were also having to do that was their job, um, they started to respect her. And she blossomed and she thrived in that job and she was very brilliant. And then she got a job by, from a company that hired her to go out and sell reliability programs. And she was still in her 20s. And so that is a huge success story to come from those barriers to employment, not being raised in the mainstream of the United States of how you even deal with people, to come into a male-dominated organization and rise through the male-dominated ranks um, and then have the respect of the males. And so she is one. Um, the other one – Well, just let's, a, let's take that apart for a minute because I think that is such a fascinating story on so so many levels. I mean, clearly it speaks to – the competency that you talked about earlier that you also shared just your own personal tenacity, right? 
Uh-huh. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And then it also speaks to um, the, you know, the opportunity, let's say, uh, maybe even responsibility for organizations to support, um, you know, men and women, in this case, a, a woman from a challenged background in a career. Um, what would you say are some of the, you know, if you were to really tease it out, some of the success factors that, you know, both she did um, as well as you and the organization did that really enabled her success? Okay. So with her, first and foremost, it was just her, it was her tenacity. She wanted to learn. And, you know, there were times that you could, that tenacity could be labeled as stubborn, you know, but, mm-hmm. you know, men and women are both stubborn at times, right? But she had it and she had this strength. But on the other side of that, she, what we had, there was some magic that went on in that plant. And so it just, this just won't happen anywhere unless people buy into this. We had a plant manager who was a very understanding person who believed in the development of people, which unleashed me to be able to go and do developmental programs. So we, we took the time to meet with her regularly. There was a group of us. It was like this village that was surrounding her because we saw this talent, but we also saw this rift between her and some of the other folks in the plant. So we took the time to meet with her to put her through the training classes, to identify her skill set. Um, we also took the time, because she wasn't in, in isolation with this, to develop everybody around um, her as well. So we were developing males and females alike in soft skills training, and, and that led into it just had the diversity to it itself just by who was in the room and the different um, areas of the country. Some of them came from different parts of the country, their different upbringings, all of that, and taught them how to converse with each other and how to get along and how to leverage each other's skills. And so that, again, you have to have a leadership organization that says right there at the front line, we're going to surround these people and we're going to extract what's good and put in the development that they need to, to leverage that rather than we're just going to throw them away because there's some agitation in our area. Yeah, I think that's fabulous because one thing we always talk about is that you put a good person against a bad system and the system's going to win every time. So I think that's so wise that you recognize, obviously, this woman was a diamond in the rough, right? And you were going to, you know, partner together to um, uh, maybe smooth out the rough edges, right? To your point, not having um, been raised in mainstream society. Um, and at the same time, recognize that it's a systems issue and opportunity. That there was, you know, as we say, the hard stuff is easy and the soft stuff is hard. So providing yes. all the technical skills in the world about how to be a maintenance person or a reliability engineer, um, if there still isn't that understanding amongst one's peers and organization about the diversity of styles, right, and how to interpret, um, you know, certain behaviors and are you, are you, are you judging uh, behavior as aggressiveness in one person versus assertiveness in another and how can you adapt yourself to have everybody be more effective also? Um, that is, that does take a visionary leadership group to, um, to recognize a need for that and then to provide the resources to make it happen, both at the individual level as well as the group level, as you seem to have done. Yes, and it was, you know, for anybody that's listening to this, it, to hear it come out of my mouth, it sounds like, oh, well, we'll just go put this program together and give them some training and then it'll be over. You know, this, this process took a few years. Right. It took a right. few years, yes. and and but yeah. we were willing because we could see, we could see that the raw talent in her, and we could also see that the people around her that were her coworkers, they also had talent. They just didn't have exposure to that, and so they needed to be enlightened as well. And and so once they saw, we can all work together as a team, and it is okay to have a woman doing this. Um, 
the, the, the whole thing, I mean, it, was, it just took off. It just took off. Yeah. And so it, it was very gratifying, very gratifying. I'm very proud of her. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I think, again, lots of lessons that we can tease out for, um, you know, the individual who's in that position, right, not feeling accepted, not being able to get their voice heard optimally, um, and also for the organization in terms of what can be done to support, um, you know, a person in that situation as well as their entire team and, you know, planting the seed that's going to, you know, take time to root, right, just like that's why there's multi-year apprenticeship programs, right? You're not going to learn technical skills overnight. The same thing with leadership and interpersonal skills. It takes time to, to nurture and it takes time to interact with each other to see um, people's different perspectives and, and all to grow together as a team. So, again, I can be rightfully proud of that as a success story. So let's hear number two. What's the second one that you wanted to share, Chris? Okay, number two is a little bit different. So this was, this was a lady who um, she applied for one of our production line jobs. And she was the mother of four children, one that she had just really had just a few months before she applied. And she had a husband who had um, one of those autoimmune diseases. He couldn't work. And so she had to go to work. So she thought, well, I'm just going to go over here and work this production line. She, she had a little bit of a different personality than the first one. She was a little bit more easygoing. Um, she was always happy. She was always positive. So on on the other side of of the spectrum, she would get maybe just a little bit pushed around a little bit, right? Walked over because she wasn't, she wouldn't like super assertive. Um, well, as we did that, that work, all this was going on in this plant pretty much around the same time. As we did all this work to, to help people learn about different personalities and whatnot, you know, this lady was in, in those classes as well. And you started to see what manufacturing needs more of. And that is that quote unquote feminine leadership style. And you know, that's a lot of that is that's not a gender thing. That's more, you know, a style like Asian countries are more feminine because they believe more in the group and the inclusion and all that. And this woman did that. She would include people, she would stop and listen to people, um, she would care about their issue, yet she would get to the root of the problem and she would get it solved. And so we saw that in her, and we've reported, we uh, promoted her to our nighttime supervisor, which is a huge job because she had the entire plan. Even though she was production supervisor, there was no supervisor for maintenance. There was no supervisor for the freezer warehouse. So she actually had the dotted line to that, and she ran the whole thing. And um, she, she did a great job, and the plant manager, he used to say, I don't know how she's getting the results with her style. I just don't know because it's not typical. And I'm there from the female mindset going, well, of course she's going to get results because people feel valued. And he's thinking, well, she's not assertive, 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 so how's she getting them? Nonetheless, she got the results. Uh, when we closed the plant, she transferred to, to our main facility in Iowa, and I, I actually got to see her last year. I was very happy to see her. She has moved from production into quality assurance because they have seen such a talent in her. They moved her over into the technical field of quality assurance, and she has so much influence. I could see it when I was there at that facility, so much influence with, with the folks, and people just feel like they're, they feel alive when they're around her and like they matter. And so she is also a success story. I'm very proud of her. Her family's doing very well. Um, so it's just another success story. 
Well, that's fabulous. And I love it too. That just shows that, um, that there's so many different ways that we can be successful, right? We can have the same piece of technical experience and yet so often it is our interpersonal skills and style that will, um, you know, we know from research into emotional intelligence that technical skills or IQ will get you the job. But what really yep. separates the average from superior performers, right, is the EQ, the emotional intelligence. And, um, you know, when, uh, if you, uh, you know, again, have that assertive, aggressive style, you can get compliance. But when you have that, you know, nurturing, building teams, listening style, you get that true commitment. Yes, yes. And she had it because her folks, her night shift people, night shift is typically, you know, as you know, it's one of those hard shifts to get people to not call off of, to not turn over from, she was such a great leader to that night shift that we could not at a certain point get people to post to come to a day shift job. They didn't want to leave that <laughs> night shift. And so that is saying you know, something. That, yeah. Yep, and, you just yeah. scratch your head and go, now i got to recruit for days? Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, and they didn't call no, off on her. They came to work. Yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, some people think that, well, how you get results is getting results, right? But I think a lot of yeah. us know that really it's relationships that get results, right? Relationships get results. And she seems to, yeah, she seems to know that intuitively well. Well, congratulations. Those are both phenomenal success stories and, and examples of both individual tenacity as well as, you know, organizational commitment and commitment by, um, you know, individual leaders as well as commitment of the system to invest resources in people's success. Yes, yes, and that's what, you know, to the listeners out there, I would say you, you have to set up the environment. The people have to want to come and, and engage in that environment, and both of these ladies did that. And and so, you know, the, the plant was better off for it. The organization yeah, was better off for it. Yes, yes. And so I'd like now to bring it back to you, Chris. Uh, we talked about the challenges that these two women faced. I would love to hear from you about the, we often learn from the greatest challenges that we face as people. Um, and knowing what you know now, what would your experienced self today tell your teenage self or early career self? Uh, what would you say in terms of, uh, you know, maybe a, a big career challenge that you were facing and how you overcame it and what you wish you had knew that, known then? Yeah, that's a good question. And we have to think back. That kind of makes your brain hurt. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I was one of those good kids when I was in school, and I just did my work and got my little grades and went on. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of engagement from the schools back then on careers, so you had to rely on your parents. And I had a stay-at-home mom. I call her a domestic goddess. Um, so she, she did that. My dad was in the Army. And, you know, I think if I could go back in time, I'd tell myself, to go ahead and do things that are a little bit more challenging in the education realm. Go out on a limb, take that harder math class, those physics classes, and a lot of the young women are doing that these days, and I'm very proud of them for that. Go and, and explore more career options. Don't just go down to the fast food restaurant and say, this is my job. Go out and actually look at what kind of jobs you could work in at a younger age or even do internships in or summer hires um, and get those kind of jobs um, and to, to start building that aptitude and discovering that aptitude a little bit better. Find out what you like and don't like. Um, and then the assertive piece of it. I, yeah, I have three brothers, so I have a little bit of an assertive nature to myself, but I was still raised in that era where you say yes and thank you and please and all of that as a, as a little girl. And so just being a little bit more assertive, standing up for myself a little bit more and being more confident in my abilities um, and my expertise in going forward and saying, here's what we've got, and, and knowing that that's not offensive, it's just assertive. And so that's what I yeah. would tell myself. 
Absolutely, and good advice for everyone listening also. Um, how about on the flip side, what do you consider your greatest professional achievement, and what can we learn from that? Oh, it was getting that doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. And, it, and, again, it goes back to because I had the full-time job, you know, it is manufacturing, so we all know that that is not, as leadership, that is not a 40-hour-a-week um, job. It's, it's many, many hours, and it's, sometimes it's sporadic depending on what's going on with the production line and, you know, when you've got to go in. Um, teaching adjunct, and when I started it, I actually was teaching for four institutions while I was working that full-time job. And then those eight boards, and, and then there's, there was this thing called a family. You know? <laughs> so juggling all of that, <laughs> right. um, that, that was my greatest academic um, um, achievement. But professionally, then working my way up the corporate ladder in the different industries that are male-dominated. You know, I, I, I'd like to say you, that to you that it was hard. Um, I, I, don't, I don't feel that it was necessarily hard. As be, it was just different because I had to go and take my skill sets and my likes and go out and find these things and say, this is what I'm going to do. So, for instance, I started out in the printing manufacturing um, end of things, and then I moved into the manufacturing of durable goods. Well, I had to be, I had to have my radar out. That was largely because of a move, but my radar had to go out to where do I want to work next. Um, and at that juncture, I could have easily stepped back into banking because I wasn't so far away, and that was the safe, comfortable place to go. But instead, I went into the durable goods manufacturing where they really rolled out the Kaizen and the Pokey Oaks and all of the lean manufacturing things that I had not too much exposure to. And being that it was um, hydraulic cylinders, that's definitely male-dominated. Um, I, I worked my way into that. And then I ended up in the food manufacturing, which is a little bit softer on the females um, that are in there than, than those durable goods. But um, it, it was um, – I think I'm proud. I am proud of myself. It's one of those things I tell I'm proud of myself because I was able to do that after I had the world telling me that I would never be able to, to get into manufacturing, much less move around and move up to where I am now. Um, on the career ladder. Well, once again, so, once again, people who say something can't be done should get out of the way of those doing it. That's right. Just yeah, get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, so as we close today, Chris, uh, two questions for you. First, what key messages would you like to leave our audience with? Key message. Key. The key message. Um, key message is, you know, this day and age, this era, the service industry um, is so prominent out there that we seem to have lost sight of, of those jobs that, you know, once were choice jobs, the manufacturing type jobs. They're kind of in the shadows now. Um, people don't, the, the dialogue is just now starting to come back on them in certain settings, uh, but people really need to understand that that is the value-added entity that really our economic engine um, in the United States. And so they're very valuable to us as a, as a country for viability, for sustainability, and all that. So we've got to have them here. Um, they have the stigma that they're dirty. The jobs, manufacturing jobs are dirty. There's long hours. Yet yeah, they're very labor-intensive. Um, and then there are those that do have that physical um, aspect to them that you need a lot of strength, but there's a whole bunch of them out there that don't need that necessarily, and they're not necessarily dirty. Um, they're not necessarily long hours. They do pay well. And so if people want to, to, to move their socioeconomic status, step into a manufacturing job. Some of those manufacturing jobs 
pay more money than the, the white-collar jobs that people are going and spending uh, $100,000 to get a four-year degree to go do. And these jobs just require generally a high school diploma and some, some technical aptitude. So they, they, they are good jobs. They pay well. They give you a sense of accomplishment, purpose, value. Um, when you go into a store, if it's a, if it's a storefront project, you can say, I helped make that. Um, you can build a career from that if you don't want to stay on the front line making, doing the manufacturing. Then you can step into more of a professional-type role like quality, like finance, um, HR. You need your lobotomy before you go into HR. Um, <laughs> but our, work, our, our workforce is becoming very, very diverse, right? So there, there's all the genders coming out now, and women – need to know that they can be successful in roles in manufacturing. They just need to know that. Um, and it's through having this diversity of the males and females and all the talents that they bring and having that available in the environment that um, we'll, we'll get that collaboration and that will validate the employees for what they're doing. And it's together as a group that this happens. Perfect. And finally, what challenge or action step would you pose to our listeners today? Very simple. Just be open-minded to having women in manufacturing. Um, if you have a daughter, a niece, a neighbor, what have you, encourage them that that is a route that they ought to explore. Um, we've got to get past gender and think about possibilities. Um, become a champion. Um, anyone can throw up a barrier. I always tell my folks this. Anybody can say, no, I can't. Um, but a, cha- a champion can see beyond those and um, those barriers and beyond the outside of appearance and really identify the talents like, like I could see and we could see in that young lady, the talents and the abilities of a person and get them slotted into something that's right for them. Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about the focus on the person, um, and that's where the focus should be. The, the focus is oftentimes on the bottom line and the dollars we're making and how much we're making for the stockholder. And I guarantee if you focus on the person and build them and build their resume and their skills, They'll stay with you, and your profits will come. And oftentimes that comes through bringing in some more females along with the males so you have that diversity so you get the different thoughts, the different mindsets, the different skill sets to make the processes more robust. Perfect, Chris. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule for being interviewed with us today. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I'm I'm glad I can help. Absolutely. And so we will go ahead and post the different links that Chris mentioned uh, for people to do some self-study research um, online at womenandmfg.com. So please, everyone listening, let's continue the conversation and please stay tuned and engage with us. And I look forward to speaking with you during our next interview. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Women and Manufacturing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.